Sweet Summer Children, coming to you live from the back room. It's another episode of the podcast, Peep This Noise. I'm Logan Johnson, and this week, I'm into doing my homework, because I have absolutely nothing going on in my life. It's been a disaster. Seated to my left is... Seated? Seated to my left, with just the greatest smirk on his face. He's going to introduce himself. A man of mystery. I never get to go before Greg in introductions. This is that is great. really how it goes? <laughs> yeah, every oh, really? single time. <laughs> oh, you know why? It's because you always derail the introduction. And seated to my right... Hi, I'm Greg Marchant, <laughs> and this week I like aloe vera cultivation. He does. Now let me tell you about the back room. This is a room in Greg's apartment, which unfortunately I can't reveal the location to you of because we don't want him to get doxxed. But um, I am being stared down is maybe an aggressive way to phrase it, but I'm fully encircled by the loving <laughs> arms of aloe vera. That does make me sound like I'm tied up poison ivy style. <laughs> there, are just, there are many of them around me, and I can feel them uh, vibing, <laughs> aloe vibing. When people talk about growing, uh, growing uh, botanical products in their back room, this is not usually what they mean. But it's what uh, it's what's happening right now. No, but uh, we inherited a gigantic aloe vera plant that needed to be um, that needed to be uh, repotted and have its um, have its children uh, taken away from it. And just yeah. like its mandrake cousins, it screamed the whole time. Yep. The point is, at peep this noise, we bought a plant zoo. I say we bought a zoo because you said we bought a greenhouse. Yeah. Yeah, but we bought a plant zoo. Yeah, greenhouse. No, because it's it's a zoo. Fine then, botanical like the, the garden. Cultural touchstone. We bought a zoo. Anyway, at the end of this <laughs> podcast, one of us, one lucky member of the group, will get fed to uh, the plant because it's uh it's asking um what what is that? It it's asking Seymour to feed it, and yeah. we don't have Seymour here, but no, it's true. Just to give you a little bit more of the kind of mm, ambiance of this room to give a little room tone uh i don't know if anybody wants that i'm staring right now at a dvd copy of x3 so that takes us somewhere um we all wish it wouldn't i have two guitars like probably within a foot and a half of me you you know what i think i can give a i think i can give a more succinct definition you guys know those mobile game ads where it says, like, hey, find the hidden objects, but, like, as you find them, it, like, tidies the room. We're sitting in the beginning of one of those. I think that's because we had to move a lot of things when we came in here. <laughs> and there is a toddler who also frequently visits this back room. He's a fan of the uh, DVD bookshelf. He doesn't know what they are, but he knows that they make fun sounds when they fall on the ground. And that he's not supposed to touch them. <laughs> this is really good because it... I mean, essentially, at this point in human development, the only point of 
physical media is for toddlers to throw it. So <laughs> it's just true, I mean, and I hate I it. Can't think of anything else, any other practical it, use. It's really it. funny because usually he likes to organize stuff. Like if he sees something out of place, he wants it to go back in whatever place he's determined it's supposed to be. I'm Nathaniel Johnson, but oh, uh, yeah. but with the DVDs, they go on the floor. Are you trying to introduce yourself now? Are you no? I just thought I'd throw that out there. Introducing yourself. Do you like anything? Uh, no, I, I'm I'm a nihilist. That means I see no point to anything. I feel like you're mischaracterizing nihilism a little bit. But... I am. <laughs> it's been a rough week for Chaboy. Man, so none of us. I mean, Greg. No, uh, Greg I like. Let's see. Um, I like not being plants. in like strict quarantine anymore, so we can actually record this show. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I like World of Warcraft Classic. Oh, we have been playing a fair chunk of WoW Classic. That's been fun. Yeah, it has. I've been playing Cities Skylines the past couple of days. Oh, How's nice. that been? It's it's kind of fun. It's really intuitive. Oh. It's kind of frustrating sometimes. I don't know the premise of the game, but I'm assuming you build cities. It's a, it's a city simulator. Yeah, I was say, yeah. like, yeah. yeah. It's kind of it's kind of frustrating sometimes. There's this constant feed of tweets that I don't know how to turn off yet from the residents of the town. Oh, and they're they're really um they're really either they're either really insulting or really pedestrian. Oh, oh <laughs> see that's a shame because in the uh, the Spider-Man game for PlayStation, they've also got essentially a Twitter feed that you can check, and that thing's hilarious. And everybody loves Spider-Man. Yeah, no, this is just all from a bunch of boomers who don't know how to use, use hashtags because that's who owns houses. See, whereas comparatively, like there's a J Jonah Jameson Twitter account that is not run by J Jonah but pretends to be him, and like requires like he says things like stop sending spider-man tidy whities to my p.o box but if you must know the p.o box is this and i'm a size medium <laughs> right like <laughs> things like that things that you expect to see on twitter yeah no this is like i keep having one resident who's just like he he just like wants to bury me for for building farms like is like, the ground he wants to bury <laughs> you he, no uh, i'm being i'm exaggerating but he's just like He's just like, really, Mayor? Farms? Can't we be a little bit more technologically sophisticated? I love this. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, Greg, you'll learn to lay off of your own political agendas as a result. <laughs> I, uh... I doubt it. <laughs> beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. Hey, welcome to Pong Boys. It's a deeper <laughs> level podcast that exists within Peep This Noise where we talk about video games. You know, every week on Pong Boys, we do the same thing. I pitch a video game that doesn't exist yet, but should. And here goes. Cities, scry lines. Now, hear me out. Scry lines. Y'all know what okay. scrying is, right? right like when a wizard stick... spies on somebody. <laughs> right, by sticking their face in a puddle Dumbledore style. Yeah, or by using a giant orb Saruman style, right? Cities, scry lines. You play a wizard in a city who just spies on people all day. Okay, wait, I have a real a question. Murder. Okay, okay, I was going to ask you how this is different from The Sims, and you just gave me the answer. No, it's basically The Sims. <laughs> I don't understand how, like, does it have to be fundamentally different from The Sims? I don't. Well, think... no, you just said, to solve a murder, like, you gave it a really specific angle. No, that's, angle. that's probably a Sims expansion pack by now, though, so. Probably. Uh, I was it's definitely say, a mod. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely Sims murder at this point. But yeah, basically the Sims, I'm thinking we can have one fundamental difference, which is that they say English 
words and that they swear a lot probably because that's what real people do <laughs> it's all in black and white this is a noir video game oh, this is good no but I, mm, does I gordon think... ramsay voice every role <laughs> <laughs> roman mars voices every role um set that aside because i think this is a good idea city or city skylines noir that's a good sequel <laughs> put that in our back pocket the people this are is like a that. dlc or a sequel yeah yeah, yeah yeah that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying so this has been the hit segment pong boys where we discuss uh a video game that doesn't exist yet, as we do every week on Peep This Noise. Been doing it since the beginning. For our second DLC, though, after Noir, we need to do a no zombie invasion. Oh. That would Just be like good. Red Dead. Oh. Yeah. See, I thought mine was going to be good because... And then the whole the whole premise of it can be about finding the cause of the zombies. Right. Like, right. What, what makes the zombies... <laughs> Cities Scrylines, colon, Redder Deader Redemptioner. Ooh, How'd this is do? good. This is good. How'd we do? Now, see, when when we go to the third one, we do go back to Noir, but Wait, it's okay. no <laughs> R, which means that it becomes City Skylines again. Oh, and the whole thing no just R. the whole thing just comes <laughs> the full snake, circle. The snake eats its own tail. <laughs> Speaking of snakes, game. no, we're in- and circles, the serpent and the rainbow. Okay, well, I guess we decided we didn't like Greg's transition. (laughs) (laughs) Today, folks, we will be talking about uh, Wade Davis's The Serpent and the Rainbow. Um, Wade Davis, uh, the author of this book, is an explorer in residence for the National Geographic Society. He's also a professor of anthropology at... um, Oh, it's some university up in Canada. Um, he's had a he's had a long, somewhat storied career as one of the um, as one of the uh, more adventurous living um, living explorers of the botanical world, shall we say? Um, he's de- he definitely characterizes himself that way. <laughs> yeah, this is very funny too. I. Having lived in Canada for a grip, I was curious which university he's at. So I googled Wade Davis. Apparently, Wade Allen Davis is an American professional baseball pitcher who's currently a free agent. Probably not the same dude. Nope. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Here we go. Uh, okay. Uh, it says he was educated at Harvard. Yes. But uh, it doesn't say where he's in residency now, which is a bummer. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, yeah, he went to Harvard, and during, as he talks about in the first part of the book, during his stay at Harvard, he was, oh, I have certain professors who would probably be disappointed in me for not remembering this, but um, he was uh, he was a student of um, one of the fairly, uh, one of the fairly influential people in um, modern American anthropology. The yeah. guy he talks about as like being his mentor, right? Yes. Whose name I have also forgotten. Names are my least strong point <laughs> that, as far as memorization goes. That's all right. Uh, Gilderoy Lockhart said fame is a fickle friend, and these dudes who were trying to remember the names should know that. So sorry, guys. Yeah. No name drops. Anyway, Wait, so um, I he, found him. He looks like Bill Murray. Let me see. <laughs> Huh, guys. Yeah, like, like. Here's the thing. I could either Bill Murray see if Bill the, Murray was a Viking. <laughs> here, here are like the three options we've got here. Either that is Bill Murray playing Wade Davis, 
Wade Davis and Bill Murray are secretly like half-brothers or something. Or Wade Davis spends part of his time as a Bill Murray impersonator. <laughs> I uh, went to his website, which is unfortunately daviswade.com. Bummer. Um, <laughs> couldn't snag the Wade Davis Earl, could you, bud? Uh, nope. His website. That went cool. to the baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems. Anyway. Uh, yeah, but his seminal work is this book we're talking about. The yes, Rainbow, this, is, right? this is the first book that he wrote. Um, he wrote it about an experience he had um, in uh, in researching um, in researching the zombification uh, phenomenon in Haiti. Um, the the serpent and the rainbow um, those those are symbols that have to do with uh, uh, Haitian well uh, voodoo uh, deities uh, voodoo spirits. Um, and so he ended up using them in the title of the, using them in the title of the book. But yeah, this, uh, this story is interesting because, uh, well, it was interesting to me originally because of its, uh, subject matter. Like when a, when a professor said, you can read like one of these three books for like your final book report in one of my early anthropology classes, I was really, uh, (laughs) I was really intrigued by the book that talked. Uh, by the book that was supposed to talk about zombies. And this is like the third time I've read this book now. And I, Sick. I really, uh, I really enjoy a lot of it. And I, um, I really enjoy a lot of it. And I've also become somewhat critical of it um, over time. That and is a relief to hear, that is Greg. such we're a relief to cool, hear. Man. Oh, we boy. Were, we were worried. <laughs> we're going to have to talk about it. And maybe maybe I'll clear, Maybe I'll get the chance to clarify some misunderstandings. Or maybe we'll all just agree on what the problematic things are. Cool. Um, cool but cool. let's get into it. So, actually, I do have a question for yeah. you and your relationship with this book. Uh, so, Logan was talking to me the other day about the concept of uh, academic lineage. Uh, can you re-convey that briefly? Yeah, sure. Here we go. My uh, broader theory of academic lineage. Get this published one day in a paper, boys. Why do we say what school we went to when it, these days it means almost nothing? And why do we talk? Why do we not talk more about like what scholars we followed and read as we like were doing our education, right? Like, wouldn't it be nice if there was a little byline on your degree that was like, here's the list of authors you really liked, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like I would have had to have put like Descartes and Kant on Right, mine. like mine, uh, John Hancock style, would just have Michel Foucault written in big letters. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, this was the idea that I've been batting around. Foucault right? would be on mine too, yeah. Mm. I never read any Foucault, which is such a shame, oh, but like I wouldn't be on there. I, I believe I've packed up my, uh, I've packed up my books that I have of of Foucault's but yeah anyway um so the question would be a good idea is Wade Davis part of your academic lineage uh you know I don't think so um Wade Davis himself um apparently once talked about himself as being somewhat of a heretic he um, he's expressed apparently he's that like four thousand times cooler now. <laughs> he he's expressed yeah. apparently that he thinks of himself more as a storyteller. I think. 
I read the book. That's fair. <laughs> that, that's that's fair, fair that he is, thinks of himself This that is way. his first book. I've also read the other book that I've read. I've read some like random articles and stuff by him, like random National Geographic things. But uh, the other book that I've read by him is uh, The Wayfinders, and his storytelling is much more refined, and he brings it to a much broader scope. Um, cool. And okay. In order to discuss um, issues of climate change in that book. Nice. Okay. Um, I'm actually really interested in this now. Yeah. Um, that one's packed up too, or I'd hand it to you. But it's all good. Um, the uh, the he's he's definitely had a role in sparking my interest in the study of anthropology, um, and especially. Originally, I was very interested in. I'm I'm more interested in different topics now, but I was originally very interested in the idea of ethnobotany, um, people's relationships, uh, cultural relationships with plants and things like that. Greg, we need to be honest with ourselves. We're sitting in a room full of aloe vera. <laughs> Wade <laughs> Davis is part of your academic I was going to say, part of you is still a little into ethnobiomy. <laughs> that's okay. Like, embrace that part of you. Go, you know what? I This dude had an impact on me, and it's significant. Like, you're like, he hasn't had that much of an impact. I've just read two of his books and a couple of his articles. I'm and surrounded I wanted to be by an plants at this very moment. <laughs> I, I, and it's like, huh. Yeah. Like, Batman, you say that that experience with bats didn't affect you that bad, but, like, I mean... <laughs> okay, so so maybe he is part of my uh, my academic I, lineage in that sense. I was going to say, one of the things that I think is very funny about this, too, is aloe vera is arguably, like, if you want an intro to ethnobotany, <laughs> it's not a bad place to start. So it's, right? a pretty, it's a pretty rich place to, to dig into. Yeah, you'll find a lot to read. <laughs> You you could go uh you could go um you could go into like the essential oils like young living sort of modern stuff that's modern cultural stuff oh. and you can go into like actual you can go into like actual folk remedies yeah. and stuff like yeah. that you can go quite a few different directions. Greg, to to quote one of my favorite Christmas songs, given the choice between the two of them, I think I'd rather take the seasick crocodile than going into depth about like essential oils. Please, oh, are you oh no, me? it's so <laughs> interesting. Oh, dude. the the people in the people involved, like it's like reading about cults, which I also do a lot. <laughs> I know you and do. I, I find cults very fascinating too because um yeah, that that's I the direction I went with my uh the direction I went with like my thesis research was um more uh more along the lines of na of uh conservative nationalism and stuff like that. Rad. Um sick project. Greg. So so cult, so definitely some cult sort of mentalities there too. Cults oh, are interesting. Sure. Yeah, cults are very interesting. Yeah, I want to make it clear your thesis was not about this country, though, right? No, it was about a different country, yeah. about conservative nationalism through that lens. Right? Well, my thesis ended up being a my th my thesis. What I wrote on ended up being about something different, but I did a lot of research about nationalism and national identity and conservatism and stuff like that along the way. That's right. That's right. Anyway, and, and eventually strayed from ethnobotany, but Wade Davis never wavered from his. <laughs> nope. Uh, and that actually is, it ends up being how he gets the job to go and investigate mm -hmm. uh, the Voodoo religion and figure out 
what's going on with zombification down there, right? Yeah. Again, like most episodes of Peep This Noise, we're assuming you read this um, and hopefully got something out of it. Um, if you haven't, go read it. It's it's a yeah, fun it, read. It's a decent audiobook, too. I think he reads it himself, maybe. Mm, no? Somebody, somebody else? else? I think the sure audiobook reading is pretty good. Yeah. It, the, I, I've heard... I've like heard a little clip of an interview by him, and I, from what I remember, I don't think he would make a very good audiobook reader. That doesn't surprise me too much. Uh, sometimes he, when he writes, goes a little. It's weird. It's not tangents. Wade Davis does this thing, and and it's kind of fun actually. Where it's it's like you know how it's like oh we're on a tangent, and that means like a line that runs parallel to a circle. You'll get on a tangent with Wade Davis, and you realize it's just another circle. It's like a – it's like – do you remember that one cool kid, the first one to figure out how to use Prezi in high school? And suddenly he shows up, and we're doing this, like, LSD-induced presentation where we're swinging around circles and zooming in and out of stuff. That's what I feel like sometimes Wade Davis writes like. And it's actually, like, one of the strongest compliments that I have for his writing is that – you always think he, he's drifting off the track, and then he's somehow in a broader picture, and it's very important to what he's saying. That said, if I can ride along with your analogy and criticize his writing and when he does that, you know when like the Prezi p- presentation would just be really slow and kind of choppy? There are times where I feel like that's what's also what's going on. Like He's definitely doing the circle thing and the going in and out, but sometimes I'm like, oh, this is taking forever. Like, I mean, come this, on. We have come said on. this is his first book. <laughs> yes, I know. And my first book, which is unpublished and unedited and will remain so because it's bad. Oh, <laughs> unedited is such a loose term, sir. <laughs> I've seen the draft. All right. Uh, you know what? <laughs> let's let's uh let's make sure that everyone can just dunk on me for a second. This was a bad fantasy attempt to like tell a bad a- retelling of Plato's allegory of the cave, and it's bad because I didn't understand Plato's allegory of the cave in the context of the Greater Republic, and so I wrote like a mm, fifty thousand word novella slash novel about like that, and it's bad. Huh. That piece of information contextualizes that piece <laughs> greatly. Okay. Okay. Um, well, fortunately, uh, this was not a 50,000 page. I'm trying to bring it back. There's no way. We've, and this well, is what's impressive about Wade Davis is that somehow he always brings it back around. And that's very cool to me. He, one, one of the things that he does definitely try to do that's very noticeable is he tries to bring in elements that – create like he doesn't just try to tell you what's going on he also tries to bring in elements that create the feel that he had while he was there yeah he's actually pretty good at evoking that kind of thing Mm -hmm. i i especially always um i i always like the part near the beginning when he just meets a random man who kind of just sort of seems to know who davis is on the porch of the hotel he's staying at yeah 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 and he just he tries to he tries to get that in there so that you carry that impression of how he felt uh while he was in haiti with Mm. you through a lot of the rest of the a lot of the rest of the story and then i I do kind of get the impression reflecting on it from like the end of the book that this guy might have just like been a been a local member of a secret society and mm-hmm. just had some information and just stopped by to say hi and check out the foreigner who was showing up and stuff like that. Yeah, one of my favorite moments that he evokes this kind of like what is Wade Davis feeling in this moment. I think 
uh, pretty obviously there's the moment when he gets the job. That entire sequence has like a very high level of like prestige and grandeur rolled into it of like a very like mysterious like very i mean it's like almost out of a movie the way he's written this scene where he gets oh yeah um but the one that impressed me even more is actually the opener of the book which i actually did not understand until you started talking about this evocation idea right where he sees the is it a jaguar that he sees Mm -hmm. in the rainforest yeah the jungle cat and he talks about like how it like he he connects it briefly to like what it could mean like locally in the area as a sign how he felt about it in the broader context of like his journeys and his explorations and like what it meant to be in this jungle and to uh, when he uh, eventually comes upon the city he's trying to get to all of this is like it's definitely it's not a piece of aesthetic in the way that like a traditional writer might try to craft it right it's a it's definitely a piece of like evoked sentiment like you're not there next to Wade Davis. You're in a lot of ways. You're there as Wade Davis. It has like a very video game kind of feel to it in that sense, which is very cool. Like not a thing a lot of writers do super well. So uh, finding words for that now that you express that he does evoke those feelings a lot. But yeah, very cool thing. Going yeah. back to the uh, the person who, like you said, was probably a member of a secret society who just kind of like talks to him at the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, I lived in Georgia. Um, which I've lived in the Intermountain West my entire life. Uh, so going to the rural South was uh, different for me in a lot of ways. And in one of the larger cities I was in, uh, there were some pretty strong geographic racial divides. And I lived in the black part of town. And without realizing that I was living there, I went into the local Walmart Um I am not black, pretty obviously, and I was the one black guy in the Walmart, and I had this You're feeling. not the one black guy in the Sorry, Walmart. Yeah. Sorry, flip that. Everybody's like. Flip that. Uh. I did say that wrong. <laughs> being the one white guy in a Walmart with a bunch of black people, I had this feeling the whole time of being watched, like this feeling of, what are you doing here, right? Like, it wasn't unfriendly. It was just there. I'm going to add a little context to this. Were you wearing a shirt and tie at the time? I was wearing a shirt and tie. Yeah, at the time, that doesn't help. Doesn't help. When I was in um, Toronto, also doing uh, volunteer missionary service, uh, people used to mistake us for immigration. Yeah, which is that like happened a real to me all the time. Too. Yeah, um, because we, I I was the same situation as a as a missionary um, in New Mexico. Um, all the time, immigration or the FBI. That's, like regularly. that's a lot of that's who that's a lot of people what thought you we were. Uh, that, what, that, a lot of people. That's possible. The image yeah. of because um, of the fraught history with the FBI and the yeah. African American community. Yeah, but what I was gonna say is, uh, I feel like it's that feeling, that emotion of like being watched, but n- nobody's like necessarily got any ill will or goodwill. They're just kind of like, "What's going on? Like, what are you doing here?" And he tries to like start off his time in Haiti with that feeling, and. It reminded me of those experiences, especially that one really poignant one of realizing that, like, oh, like, everyone is watching me. And he kind of carries that through the book. Yeah, I feel—oh, sorry, to, I'll, I'll kick off here just with a quick thought about this. I feel like he could he could have done the sellout move and essentially tried to craft a sense of mystery, right? And he uses the word mystery a lot. Like, I was trying to figure out the mystery of the plan and what was going on. What's the whole thing with the Vidoon, right? But— he doesn't actually craft a real sense of mystery. I would describe it more as a sense of curiosity, 
right? Mm-hmm. He's curious. Yes. The people around him are curious. Everybody's watching everything and kind of waiting for everybody's next move. And it, it hums with a tension that is very mild, right? As opposed to a tension that would be hostile, right? And I think that's, a hard, again, a hard line to walk, and I think he does that really well. Yeah, this is this is ethnography in a very interesting sense in that he's not just trying to talk about the culture. He's trying to convey the experience of encountering a culture that he wasn't a part of. He's trying to convey that experience. And not really invited to be a part of, right? Like, it's not like they reached out to him and said, hey, come to Haiti, right? Like, he's... It was white businessmen, white American businessmen telling him to go into, uh, telling him to go into Haiti and uncover the, uncover some secrets that are sacred to certain people there. Yeah. Um, so... This might be a good point to segue, unless, Logan, you need to add something. One more thought. I was going to say, this is something that also I would credit him with. I, I mentioned up top that I have some concerns about the way this book is laid out and, and some of the things that it does later on. I don't know that it is necessarily flawless, uh, but this is where I, I actually have to give a lot of credit to Davis uh, as he e- exemplifies the archetypical evolution uh, of the anthropologist past the traditional pith helmet wearing colonial explorer right <laughs> i was gonna say as he talks about this culture everything he says does writes kind of resonates with this inherent respect right like this is a man who knows he is viewing a people with a complex culture and has a lot of respect for his lack of understanding and the reality of his positioning within it right which is very cool to me um and that shows in the writing which i think is again like a credit to him yeah, I think sometimes he swings that needle too far where he becomes like, like where he almost romanticizes it. But I think that I'd rather have the needle swing too far that direction than the other direction of not respecting it in any way. Does that does that make sense? Maybe I personally I feel like romanticizing is a form of uh, is a form of not respecting it because it's still turning it into something that it's not. But let's uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about that because my first question was this uh Wade Davis writing this story this is a um this is a white man telling uh this is a white american man telling a black uh afro-caribbean story mm-hmm. let's talk about um let's talk about how he does with this Let, and more uh more broadly what do we think about the the telling of black stories by white authors, and how does Davis do on that front? Does he do well? Does he do poorly? And how? So, uh, when I got my undergraduate degree, I graduated with a minor in Latin American studies, which means that I spent a, a substantial portion of that time learning about Haitian culture and history. Um, not a ton. Like, I didn't do something like read Serpent and the Rainbow, uh, but it came up in almost every single one of the classes that I took for that class. And we focused a lot on Haitian Revolution. Um, it was described to me by one of my other professors as around that time period that the Free Revolution was the first Revolution, and that one was a relatively tame revolution. Um, like, obviously, there was a conflict, but at the end of the day, everybody more or less ended up, you know, okay, what happened? Then there was the French Revolution. Although we want to get a tame revolution, it's the same Oh, okay. Um, the Second Revolution was the French Revolution, and that one was not so tame. Um, and there were like public meetings and things like that of uh, leaders, uh, and it kind of freaked out the European powers um, pretty badly, especially because it was on mainland Europe. And then there was the Haitian Revolution, 
and that one was like apparently really bloody and really gruesome compared to the other two, and kind of disastrous in a lot of ways. Um, I'm curious here, this introduction, uh, to make a little more information about this, right? Because we need to be conscious of the fact that many times black folks in general are portrayed as more violent and more dangerous yes. and more criminal than white folks. Yeah. So we need to be cautious here. Well, and this, this is why, yeah, so first, I want to say this is what was characterized to me. And this is significant in the history because after that, you get a really strong crackdown on the various colonies that exist in, of the European powers after the Haitian Revolution, and revolutions uh, are not as successful after that. They take a lot more effort and a lot more work, and they're not as quick as any of these other three revolutions. I, I do want to just interject here something on something that, if you've read this, if you've read this book, you came across. Um, the Haitian Revolution was extremely bloody, but not in the way that the French Revolution was. It was just in terms of how many soldiers, mm -hmm. uh, particularly soldiers from Europe, died in that. Um, right. Because the because France tried like France was driven out, then tried like three times to retake it, and then Spain tried to take right. it. This and would be like after all... the Battle of Yorktown. The British kept coming, and they they sustained something like ninety percent losses. <laughs> they sustained something like ninety percent losses, or something like that. I'm my numbers there are not accurate. I'm sorry, um, but just they they You're sustained being illustrative. A, they they sustained a ton of losses, while it's very likely that the Haitian army sustained relatively few. Right. Um, so it it was very bloody, but not in the not, not in the like way the French of Revolution. The French was. Revolution. Right. It the the Haitians were uh, the Haitians were better. Uh, they were better organized. They had a better cause to fight for, mm -hmm. and they had much better. Uh, they had much better leadership. Okay, this goes back to what I got with my degree. I should mention, like this was a significant part of it. The way that the Haitian Revolution and the aftermath of that then was always characterized to me is that they basically fell apart as a government. Mm -hmm. And I got that from multiple professors, among other things, that they could not do agriculture because they destroyed all of the agricultural equipment. Wade Davis presents a completely different version in a lot of ways. Yeah, so let's chase that for a minute because I was going to bring this up later, but we're here now. Let's talk about that um, that Eurocentric um, version of Haitian history and how Davis uh, and how Davis goes about arguing against it. Um, continue with what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, no, like I mean, here we have this this very specific painting of a revolution. Uh, you know, from people who grew up in a country that was born from revolution, right? Um, and we get this picture painted that is, this was a dark, violent revolution, and it just led to decades and centuries of chaos afterwards. Mm -hmm. When in reality, the Haitian military then went around and helped six other countries overthrow the colonial powers in the area, including the Dominican Republic, which takes up the other half of that island. Yep. Yeah, this was something that kind of surprised me a little bit about uh, his narration that he gives in Serpent and the Rainbow and kind of his gloss over Haitian history. Um, these were some pretty effective revolutionaries, huh? Yeah. yeah. Like, mm -hmm. this squad, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to, like, do anything that leans toward, like, a glorification of, of war or violence or bloodshed, because obviously that all sucks, but, like, if you've got a... Un unseat the colonial powers these guys did a pretty good job right yeah and they absolutely needed to unseat the colonial powers let me make that clear yeah. um and they they were effective at it which i thought was really cool and and this is a place where i think davis kind of triumphs well triumphs is maybe a little strong but i think he succeeds in his characterization of having to be the white man telling the black story right i think that he does like a pretty good job of of paying of giving credit where it's due and saying, like, hey, here's a clearer, cleaner picture of what happened in this revolution that is is disparate in a lot of ways from the fraught histories that uh, 
revisionist politics tend to write about these kinds of revolutions, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's one of my favorite portions of the story is when he describes this history. Um, because oh, it's one of my favorite portions because when he describes this, um, he he brings up a much more. I always like complication. I always like to know what the mm-hmm. complicated, messy picture is. Yeah, give me the simple to get me started, so I can start forming a picture. But give me the complicated as soon as I can swallow it. It's just the it's it's also just the way that my brain works. I like holding a bunch of tangled, messy ideas in uh in suspension with each other and seeing how they bounce off of each other seeing the connections and the the um the webs of meaning here uh the webs of meaning that are strung together between the events um and i liked this because i got to hear something about like the I got to hear something about the revolution and the and the events and the invasions that failed, and I got to hear about um, I got to hear about the environmental devastation that the colonial forestry and stuff like that did to the island, and I got to and why Haiti is so resource poor in a lot of ways now. Um, I got to hear about the uh the divisions between elite and rural peasantry that evolved out of um out of the uh people uh living uh living so closely to the land as uh as small um as small scale farmers while the elites lived in the city and the division between city and countryside that uh that existed and how all of these things came together to our uh to kind of like create modern uh modern haiti as um modern haiti as a place that has kind of in a lot of ways succeeded but not in ways that the western world typically values yeah i was gonna say this is definitely uh, the part in the book when it goes over the revolution that davis's narrative slows down considerably um however to me this is one of the most valuable parts of the book uh, my one of my areas of interest is in uh, basically religious history broadly and the history of Christianity in, in particular. And all of this colonial stuff falls pretty neatly into what I'll situate as the quote-unquote blood era of Christianity, right? And so even for like my studies, which tend to be less tangentially related to this kind of work directly, like um, of course I, I was fascinated by his depiction of the Vadun faith and, and everything that happened there, because that is also in my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, but also I was surprised that this took me even in another direction that was interesting to me, right? The way the, the Spanish are characterized here, the way we understand what happened in these events, the way that it gives us a different and, and more accurate picture of, again, some of the events in the blood era of Christianity, right? Um, is very cool to me. And I, I was pleasantly surprised by the inclusion of a at least seemingly reliable colonial narrative here, which was mm-hmm. super cool. I so I think this is one point that Davis does well. He does a good job at um, he does a good job at avoiding a Eurocentric history when he's dealing with a historically bound subject matter. Um, yeah, I don't seem to remember him mentioning why Haiti was an important colony to Europe. I seem to remember him talking about basically like pre-colonial Haiti. 
and like uh, the Africans who were taken to Haiti and their history and their shared histories and just different histories um, and focusing on that. And like, so focusing on Haiti before colonists, uh, Africans before colonists, the, t- the merger of the two because of colonists, and then just focusing on the Haitian people from then on. Um, and maybe I'm misremembering or mischaracterizing, but that's such a better look at the history of a people than starting off with the people who are no longer part of that history. Yeah. Um, so I think this is one thing that he did pretty well, but let's, uh, let's circle back now. Um, were there any parts you felt like he did poorly, uh, with being a white, uh, a white narrator telling a black story or maybe, maybe you have some opinions on white narrators telling black stories in general. Your turn. We, have a, we have a stare down going on between. Yeah. Nathaniel and I were like kind of figuring like who should take this. And I think that this speaks broadly to the question in general, right? About white narrators telling black stories. My um, immediate reticence to even address the issue mm, yeah. is kind of emblematic of my feelings on it, which is that black writers, black orators, black, rhetoricians they all have voices that are far better equipped to address this kind of thing than mine right and so it becomes kind of difficult because um work i i am uh working from a position of privilege which allows me to do things like have regular access to books and information and uh podcasting equipment while at the same time um uh engaging on the regular with issues that are really not my issues right and so i think it's a little tough to speak to and i guess my overall feeling and sentiment about um white folks telling black stories is that generally i don't think that it should happen right um that being said i don't think it's inherently wrong when it does i would just prefer to read uh, a haitian's perspective on this right rather than wade davis's um i think uh, again sympathizing with him though as somebody who is i mean obviously he was privileged enough to have the experience of learning ethnobotany right of studying under that guy i'll find it i'll find his name (laughs) track him down where apparently he's coming up again so that really uh famous ethnobotanist who he did have the experience of training under um is that's something not everybody gets right and so um he has a a kind of unique experience and so with that in perspective and and with the added benefit of a little bit of critical distance from Vadoon, i do think that it, it does lend itself well to giving a kind of external record uh but then it also brings with it the baggage and limitations of an external record yeah i i think that any i think any external record has the benefit if you are an external audience the external writer has an idea of what you need to know as the audience. Things that aren't necessarily going to be obvious to you as the reader. Whereas sometimes when you are the insider writing about something, that's not as obvious what an outside party needs to know in order to actually understand. Um, That said, though, um, I think that those hurdles could all be overcome. Um, It's just something that I think that he does have an advantage with there, that because his audience is primarily people who are uh you know american or european um who haven't been to haiti he knows what things he needs to explain to that audience 
another thing that I think goes in kind of his favor is this isn't just a story about Haiti or Haitian people. It's also a story about his experiences there, which I think kind of like frees him up more. He's able yeah, to say, I think that helps. this is this is what I experienced. And in order for you to understand this experience fully, I do need to devote a chapter here to the Haitian history, or I need to devote a chapter here to the things that I learned over the course of all my time here about the Vidun religion, or, and so on. Yeah. Personally, this is where I fall on this, um, in his case. I, and in a general sense, I don't have a problem with white voices telling black stories under under certain conditions like where we live in we live in a situation where although black voices are becoming more prominent is it really better to just not have uh not have white people spreading black stories and just leave it to black voices while I wish there was more representation, especially in anthropology, because anthropology, even though I, I think it's somewhat better in anthropology than academia at large, but in anthropology and academia at large, there is uh, there has been a tendency for a long time that it's mostly white men doing the doing the work, and then when it's not white men, a lot of the time it's white women. <laughs> um. And so, like, I, while I think that anthropology as a discipline is a little bit ahead of the curve at dealing with uh, gender and racial gaps in, in the field, it's definitely not perfect, so I wish there was more representation, but I, I think it's better to just have more people telling stories as long as they're generally doing the story justice. And this is where I fall on Wade Davis. I think in general he does the story justice, except where he tends to, he, he does tend with, when he waxes poetic, to exoticize. And I expressed my feelings on exoticizing mm, I use the other term cultures. Romantic. I use the term yeah, romanticizing, but exoticizing is better. Yeah. The, the rendering of the unfamiliar as exotic is a, particular harm, a particularly harmful trope that a lot of feminists have examined um the 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 making especially of like female bodies from oh, other races <laughs> making we're, them we're exotic and desirable yes like these are these are issues and obviously wade davis davis doesn't really push it into like this into like the weird like over sexualization that happens a lot in video games he does however exotic uh exotic exotify exoticize the cult exodius yes exodius. exodia the chained one <laughs> he he does however uh he does however make exotic uh especially when he's waxing poetic the culture he's encountering um, the, his descriptions of some of the religious rituals, um, things like that. Yeah, my big issue here, um, and again, this tying of of the making exotic of the foreign, uh, this tie that the feminist scholars that you've referenced have have tied to, like kind of an inherent sexuality, right? Like an inherent or inherent sensuality. Right, this becomes particularly alarming to me. Uh, maybe alarming is not the right word, since 
these events took place in 1985, and it's been a grip, so maybe I'm not filled with a sense of urgency about it. But I'm concerned when I read his portrayal of Rachel, um, the daughter of the man who is essentially his main contact in Haiti. There's like a very strange, and I know Nathaniel noticed this too, yeah. like a very strange portrayal of her as like, uh, I guess it's hard to it's hard to explain, right? Because he doesn't spend too much time talking about her body, though he does do that. But there's like an interesting um, connection to her uh, her mind, right? I think you described it as a uh, sapiosexual. Was that what it was? Yeah, the term a little used? bit in the sense that like he is over romanticizing like her precocious abilities as like a, a thinker in a way that feels exotified, right? Or maybe a little exotic, bit, yeah. Right? She's Rachel is Rachel is one of the characters. I'm going to say characters because this is a written work, although she is a real person. Um, she is one of the characters in the story who gets more time than a lot of others. And it's often very intimate time, mm-hmm. right? Like they have very, even like a mundane discussion about like, hey, Rachel, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Is like framed and couched in this very poetic way that gives it an intimacy that I was never comfortable with. <laughs> yeah, right? that's exactly is, how I feel. While I'm gonna I'm gonna hazard here that there's while I'm gonna hazard here that he's not trying to do it. he's not trying to be in any way weird about it. I think he's just trying to I think he's trying to make some other points by showing. His, by showing in the book the interactions he had with Rachel, it is uh, it is uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think this is it's kind of weird. I'd agree with you that I think this is largely a byproduct of like <laughs> the way he chose to write this book, mm-hmm. right, and the way that he structured his narrative and the way that everything is kind of a little detached and exotic, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is in high school, so maybe we can cool our jets, right? I mean, she yeah. isn't now. She's got to be. I mean, this was 35 years ago, so she'd be over 50 now, which is kind of crazy. Wow, yeah. But, um, but yeah, like very – just a very, very strange way of characterizing this. And, and um, when she's kind of shown in the portrayal of the religion with the other priestesses that – or I can't remember the exact term he uses to describe these. Oh, yeah. Um, these young women who assist in the the ordinance, right, or the the ritual, but there's a there's an index in the back of the book. I'm gonna find it. Okay, rad. Um, go go ahead, and I'll jump back in. Once but I yeah, have it. that I mean, there is a characterization there of the. I mean, I don't know if he exactly uses the word exotic beauty, but it the energy is for sure there. But yeah, if you told me that, like, that that was in there, like. I'd probably just believe you. Right. And there's definitely like a, a weird tension around the spatiality of um, their bodies and yeah. the interaction of their bodies, right? Well, and he definitely has more blatant moments than this in the book, right? But this is always the one that felt kind of like the creepiest to me. Well, what what troubles me about it is that it migrates from <laughs> look at the way these bodies are interacting in the the inherent sensuality of this right, which is uh, not something that I fully believe, right? A lot of uh, rites that maybe, or rituals that people maybe consider sensual from an outside perspective are actually uh, a little more mundane and um, grounded than uh, outsiders tend to give perspective to. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this is that he, then 
she steps out of it and is like, hi, I'm Rachel. And he's like, dope. Now you are caught up in this fraught description that I've used earlier. Right. Um, uh, uh, Hunsis. Oh yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Hunsis. Um, but yeah, I, anyway, the, that, that kind of troubled me in connection with this idea of how did he make things exotic? How did he, again, sexualize isn't the right word, but he gives a kind of like in intimacy to things that maybe were you sitting there probably didn't have it right. Like things were probably maybe a little more uh, toned down than some of the ways that he spikes the exotic nature of these scenes. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely uncomfortable to kind of put yourself in his perspective it kind of comes across that this may be just the way that he sees the world um also as he's writing he is trying to part of a big part of how he creates the atmosphere he's trying to convey how he evokes that is through um is through sensual meaning like he tries to conjure that up by describing the the tastes and sounds and smells around him and it's important to like, and that maybe doesn't trans well to pe translate well to people. <laughs> yeah, well, this is what I was gonna say. Is that this is the the other side of a coin, right? We we lauded him earlier for being able to capture the feeling, right? And then it's like, <laughs> it's like he really captures the feeling. Oh, I didn't want that one. That's not one I wanted, right? Um, and so I definitely think that this is like kind of the darker side of some of the positive aspects of his work, right? Maybe where where that that work and that that skill that he employs doesn't necessarily hold up for me all the way. Yeah. Okay, so I found out um who his teacher was. It was Richard Evans Schultes. Yes, who is especially famous for having like gone on sabbatical for a term uh into the Amazon and then disappearing there and not coming back for 13 years legendary he, that man was living his best life he uh he got on the he got on the news a bunch after after that and told he people asked him some interesting some about some of his more interesting encounters and the universal reaction was always like shock and confusion and being uncomfortable with it which was really telling about our society and how we react to the unfamiliar um and yeah so he's yeah schultes richard evans schultes when they finally found him somebody looked him dead in the eye and said dr schultes i presume <laughs> um uh, but if you look at this picture of him he he does kind of also represent like the the pith cap and oh, tiny yeah, big livingstone vibes <laughs> livingstone kind of uh yeah figure in anthropology and that's 1940 oh yeah, that timeline makes a little more sense at yeah. least, right Speaking of pictures, I wanted to bring this up when you uh, mentioned Haiti as being uh, resource poor. Have you guys ever seen pictures of the Haitian-Dominican-Republican uh, uh, border? Uh, no, I've not. Not a whole lot. No. Um, so if you look but at I, if I remember right, there's like no forest left on the Haitian side. Yeah, so if you've got an aerial view, it's just like grassland on one side of the road, and on the other, it's incredibly dense, thick forest jungle on the Dominican Republic side. Yeah. It's fascinating yeah hmm. interesting yeah that that was the resource that they were m mostly taking out of there at first was uh was timber yeah yeah in fact i may try to pull up a picture here but this anyway, is an audio medium it is an audio medium <laughs> anyway, anyway. Hey, hey 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 
It's me, the pod fairy, <laughs> the, the fairy pod mother. That's what I wanted to say. Fairy pod mother. That's <laughs> it's me, good. the fairy pod mother. This is an audio medium. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Sorry, guys. <laughs> he pulled up the picture anyway. I tried to warn yeah. him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He killed the fairy pod mother. Yeah. Like I said, uh, those of you at home, I'll, you should just look up Haitian. Uh, was it 2005, Peter Pan? I love that film, the one where it's the one where Hugh Jackman <laughs> sings "Smells Like Teen Spirit on a Pirate Ship." I think that's closer to fifteen. Not Sorry, five. I should, I should throw a comment in there. It's the one where Hugh Jackman sings the Nirvana song "Smells Like Teen Spirit" on a pirate ship. That Peter Pan movie, the one where Nathaniel, by showing that picture, essentially said, "I don't believe in fairy pod mothers," and killed the fairy pod mother. <laughs> She's dead. <laughs> that was a short-lived character here on Peep This Noise. So, we're getting a little bit late on time here, so I'm just going to gloss over my second to last question so that we can just drop in on the last question, because the last one will be pretty brief. I wanted to talk about implicit bias in science. Um, The main point was just that the, the things that get researched are a lot of times determined by the people who have the money. Like, in this case, these are, this is... This adventure is funded by two old, rich, white guys in, like, Boston. And viewers like you. Who, <laughs> who, wa- who like... jokes never get old, but they always are underfunded. Who are, like, pharmac- pharmaceuticals and executives, so, like, big pharma executives, who also, like, romanticize the idea of escaping death as they near their twilight years. Like, the, these yeah. are, this is not exactly, like, Spoiler a rational... Learning. They did not. <laughs> this is not exactly like a rational search for search for truth and enlightenment. This is this is somewhat pharmaceutical research this, and somewhat the whims of old people. This is twentieth century Ponce de Leon. Yeah, this this is what takes Davis on this adventure. Yeah, that he has. Um, yeah, wow. That that's that's mostly what I wanted to bring up. My final question for you guys, though is what stuck with you from this story. Um, I do want to go back really quick to the uh, benefactors. Uh, They seem to be going underneath uh, Jafar from Aladdin's uh, golden rule, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. Um, I mean, that is the golden rule according to them, right? And that's why they're able to send Wade Davis on this trip. And that is one of the things that stuck with me is like, here are these two wealthy guys who said, hey, we heard you like plants. And we've heard about the zombies cucumber and he's like yeah sure i'll go <laughs> right like like and that, that like the whole exchange is just weird like i'm trying to imagine getting a job like that where they're like hey we heard you like law you ready to go read the magna carta it's like yeah i mean like i guess that's weird <laughs> though like that's really weird but in this case it's more like sure i'll take your money and go and try and figure out what you're doing and I'm going to like actually do. I'm going to actually like learn stuff that's important along the way. <laughs> and we all learned life lessons, and we we realized the real poison was friendship. <laughs> I, I I get the feeling the of, real poison was the slow burn toxicity of hope. <laughs> I, I get this feeling as you're describing this of like Shrek being in like Lord Farquaad's court, and he's like, "I just want my swamp." What do you? What is all of this? True. Wade Davis just wanted his swamp the whole time. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? He's just like happy yeah. to be in Haiti. He doesn't care about this cucumber. However, the one time that he did get his swamp for a long period of time, as uh, as Logan mentioned, he was very happy to see the city again, to to see Duloc again when he got That's out. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. 
Um, what sticks with me about this, uh, and again, I, I consider this largely a primer on some of the topics he discussed, like a really good entry level, really good entry level literature, um, on some of the topics that he discussed, particularly the Vadun faith, right? Which is by far the most interesting thing to me about this. Yeah. Um, and some of the things that he, he talked about will, will stick with me, I'm sure. Number one uh, thing that will stick with me is his uh, evocation, which we talked about before, right? Uh, I. It's tough because of the way he does slip the exotic in there throughout this narrative, but there were definite moments where I felt like I understood to a degree or as best as I could through text what it might be like to be an outsider and see this kind of thing, right? Um, and, and again, I, I'm fascinated. I will likely end up reading more about the faith because that is kind of my thing. But, um, but yeah, it was cool to, to part of the thing that is hard to convey with faith is the reverence of it. Right. And while he does scuff the line too far in a number of instances in this text, he also does in other places get the reverence as a sentiment, right, that you can actually feel in the text as he talks about. Um, I mean, and, and for him, the reverence is maybe a little different. For him, it's the reverence of his, uh, frankly, of his craft, right, of, like, his life is, as an ethnobotanist and archaeologist, like, this is his thing, right? The, this matters to him. So it's not necessarily the kind that you get when you hear a, a true believer speak with reverence about their faith, but it's something, and it's more than a Wikipedia page gives you. Right, it's different. It's a and that that sentiment, the feeling that I had listening to this book, sometimes at two times speed because I was running out of time, um, <laughs> will stick with me for a minute, and that was really cool for me. I I feel a lot the same way. His evocation of um, of his like getting he got me to kind of I feel like I felt a lot of his experience. Like I I didn't exactly experience it, but I feel like I felt it. That really stuck with me. One of the one of the other things that really stuck with me is, of course, like this was my first exposure to a uh, narrative about colonialism from the colonized from the colonized people's side of things. So that that version of the Haitian Revolution really stuck has always really stuck with me. Um, the one thing that sticks with me the most is this idea of. This idea that he bring that he made clear when he was talking about meeting with these people who had been zombies, or I don't know, maybe they would still be considered zombies. I don't know if it's like a once a zombie, always a zombie thing. I, I don't pretend to understand that much <laughs> of the significance. But talking with these people who were zombies, who were, uh, who were poisoned drugged, taken uh, taken away from their homes, and enslaved as workers uh, under the command of someone who kept them constantly drugged, and that this is a real thing that's been documented always sticks with me because it's just one more thing that teaches me that there's stuff that I just won't be able to explain, but that is worth trying to understand, even if I can't explain it on face value. Yeah, what's really cool about that to me is um, it gives us broader context for our understanding of the zombie as a cultural figure, 
right? And maybe reveals many, many, many problems with our understanding of of the or our, our representation of zombies in popular culture. Yeah, in, yeah, incredibly troubling. I had listened to, I mean, if if I recall right, this is how we got on the Serpent and the Rainbow is that I had listened to a podcast about this and mentioned some of this idea at the end of one of our other podcasts. Zombies like, being analogous to black people. Yeah. We, yeah. You had said, hey, I got a book. Yeah. And we were talking mm-hmm. about Lilo that's and what Stitch, brought this up. where she practices voodoo. And that's how we got on this oh, whole that's right. Uh-huh. That's right. Yep. It started with Lilo and Stitch, went to uh, went into problematic representations of uh, black people in Western culture, and in particular in American culture, and then it ended up here in the serpent and serpent and the rainbow and we'll yeah. see where it goes from here yeah speaking of seeing where it goes from here this is a good time as any to uh talk about our plans for the future uh i think logan uh you should probably do this because you are going next if i remember correctly yeah so um this is uh a thematic month we're now doing october octavia butler october oh. i just realized that as i was looking i like looked over we're gonna we're gonna talk about octavia butler's short story blood child um you didn't hear this from me, but you can probably find a PDF on the interweb. Um, or you can buy the book of short stories, which is Blood Child and Other Stories by Octavia Butler. I just picked that up at Barnes & Noble the other day. I think it was like $15 or something. And the printing is really nice. So like, it's a, it's a good book, bookshelf edition. It's a good bookshelf edition, and it's a good bookshelf edition. If you're interested in uh, in adding something to your collection, I'd... I'd recommend Blood Child, at least. I haven't had a chance to dig into any of the other short stories. Um, we're going to be talking about that up next. So it's it's relatively short. I think people should be able to to handle it. It's like, what, 20 pages? Uh, Yeah, something like that. I think my printing, it's 35, but they're short pages. Cool. So, yeah, it's uh, it should it'll be quicker than some of the other things we've read in this. How's that? <laughs> It's probably about on par with the yellow wallpaper if people – wait, I don't even know. We, we've published that one. Somebody asked me the other we've, day if I've read it, and I went, yeah, I have a – maybe I don't. <laughs> I, I think it's one of the ones that we put out as bonus content on a, on a week we had to miss. Yeah, uh, the PTN archives. Yeah. It's uh, – uh, I mean, that one's even longer. That one's like 53 pages or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you hear that? That's the siren song that calls us back into the digital storage cave where we're kept between podcast episodes, which means it's about time for us to say goodbye. But before we do, I want to give a special shout out to um, Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers. They recorded a little number you might recognize. It's called Don't Know Why. It's from the album California Light, and it serves as our theme song. A very gracious uh, of katie davidson and the band key losers to allow us to use that um really appreciate that it's a fantastic track fantastic album i don't know what to tell you people i've been thinking about ordering it on vinyl actually for a grip and uh if i didn't know that it will perennially perennially be available like it will just it's a the record label that sells it is like very indie it's a guy named phil elbrum you might know him from the project mount erie we haven't done a Mount Erie record, have we? No, but I think you've talked about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he owns his own label, and he always has stuff. He's pretty much, he's good. He's always in stock. Um, but yeah, I've been thinking about buying it on vinyl because it's a, an amazing track and an amazing album. Y'all should check it out. There's some good stuff there. Um, is there anything else I, I do here? I, it's okay. You know what? This is fun. Uh, Nathaniel, where can people find you on the internet? 
Torts and Gavels at uh, Twitter. At Torts and Gavels. Greg, where can people find you on the internet? I believe it's still just Greg Marchant. Uh, with a total of three Gs. With a total. Yeah, it's G-R-E-G-G. Have you considered just Marchant. going by Triple G? <laughs> I like have the, gone by Triple G like before. The grandma from More the particularly, wings. people have bestowed it upon me before. Nice. Thank yeah. you, Hoodwinked. <laughs> I wish your name... Wait, do you have a middle name, Greg? Yes. Do you know what it is? No. Logan D. It has a Z, though. It does have a Z. And an F. No, it doesn't have an F. I was going to say, is it like Zafarian? Is it just like... Is it a PH? No. Wait, do I have it wrong? It's an L. Wait, Alonzo. Oh, oh, Alonzo. Okay, you're right. I am. Oh, it's, not it's, not Alfonso. Alfonso. it's not Alfonso. It's not Alfonso. It's Alonzo. My bad. That's cool. I was gonna say, if you had a G in your middle name, you could go by 4G LTE, which would be a great nickname. Yeah. No. Now I'm just the outdated. Yeah. Uh, now you're just 3G. Now I'm 3G broadband. <laughs> and on that note, I think. Oh, I should tell people where to find me on the internet. I'm on Twitter at Logan Has a Take. Um, it took me a minute to secure that one. I, it was. I don't remember what it was before, but it was bad. Not a good way to get in touch with me. Um, yeah, so that's, I think, going to do it for us. We, we don't do anything else here, right? There's one more thing we do. We remind them one really important thing about all media. And remember. No, 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 no. I know. I know how I end the show. <laughs> I wasn't about to just be like, bye. No, what we should do, though, we should thank our album artist, the person who yes. did our cover art. We I don't know her last name, that. though, so somebody else take that. Uh, we'd like to uh, thank... Uh, you don't know you don't know <laughs> Megan's last name? No, and I feel like you don't either. It's Kamire. It's Kamire. Oh. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Oh, no. I didn't at least grow that's up in how Zimbabwe. at least that's how I've been saying that. So um if if you're listening, I'm sorry you can correct me next time uh next time yeah. we come and hang out with you. I'm sorry if I've been saying it wrong. Yeah. She absolutely did fantastic work putting a marshmallow peep on some physical media and surrounding it by headphones. Like I'll tell you what, we had a vision for that, and we haven't mentioned this on the show, so I'm going to gush for a second, like a kid in a Gushers commercial whose head just turned into a giant fruit. Topical. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to gush for a second because we really had a vision for what that cover art would look like, and she really ran with it. Like, she really made it work. Uh, So special thank you there. So thank you, Megan. notification on my watch to remind me to breathe so that I can think clearly, which is a a subtle burn from my Apple Watch telling me that I'm rambling. So I think I'll wrap up by saying thanks again for listening to Peep This Noise. And remember, everybody likes bad things. Open up your mind Echoing inside